Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour. And we're going to be looking at some stories happening here in Ireland, but also around the world. And we're going to be looking at those stories in a little bit more detail. Now, coming up on today's show, Rudy Giuliani has turned himself into authorities at a jail in Atlanta, Georgia this week. But he has also pushed political boundaries in every direction over the course of his career. He was once the saviour of New York and a post 9-11 hero and he's now facing multiple indictments. But who exactly is Rudy Giuliani? Where did he come from? Well, we're going to be looking at his life and times and what lies ahead for one of the most divisive political figures of our time. I'll be talking to Lloyd Green, who's a New York attorney and he served in the US Department of Justice. He writes for The Guardian and he's going to be joining us today. Also, the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, has said that he's going to put some more pressure on our banking sector to pass on some of their windfall profits to customers. And while we wait for this mismatch to be rectified, is there something that you could be doing with your money to get a better return? Well, the simple answer is yes. So today, Ellie Donnelly of the Business Post will be joining us to give you some top tips. And also Dermot Murnahan, who's a veteran UK broadcaster, is going to be with us ahead of his appearance at the JFK Summer School next week. And he'll be talking about his career and the rise of celebrity politics. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, let's start with that issue of what to do with any money that you might have sitting on deposit in Irish banks because many people say that the banks here are not giving their customers what they should be with many saving for years but actually seeing no benefit at all. So should people be looking elsewhere for ways to save or even invest their money? Well, here to give us more information on the topic is senior business reporter and journalist with The Business Post, Ellie Donnelly. Ellie, thank you for joining us again here on News Talk. No problem at all, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Now, I suppose let's just put a bit of context on this. First of all, um, what's the charge against the banks when it comes to holding on to deposits for customers? So people are saying that, you know, the ECB has been raising interest rates since, you know, for the past uh, number of months and people are not seeing it then in their deposits that they have in the bank. It's not earning much interest and people kind of feel, you know, banks have been quick to pass on interest rate increases when it comes to mortgages and they want the same down for their savings. Mm. And a lot of people putting this down to a lack of competition. So you might just give us an overview as to the limited nature of the Irish banking sector and the implications of that for things like deposit and interest rates. Absolutely. It's been well documented, the exit of KBC and Ulster Bank. So we've went from a situation where we have five pillar banks operating in Ireland to a situation now where there's only three main banks here. So obviously that does reduce competition. And I mean, we can see that in the rise of, you know, people using Revolut and and things like that. So your non-traditional banks. Um, The banks themselves are in very robust shape at the moment. Three main banks in the country here are on track to make over five billion euro in combined profits this year and that's you know on the back of these increasing interest rates by the European Central Bank over the last year. Mm. And we've seen uh, the finance minister Michael McGrath sort of nudging uh, banks towards this rectifying the mismatch so while we wait for that uh, mismatch to be rectified maybe uh, Ellie you could talk us through some of the alternative things that people could do if they're not actually receiving any proper interest rate uh, increases in the near term. Where else can you put your money if you have some? 
I say, well, the first thing then would be a savings account. So the deposit account doesn't have much interest on it, but the savings account here from the three main lenders is 2%. And you know, one of the reasons why deposit accounts are going to have much lower returns is because they are lower risk. Any deposit that you hold up to €100,000 is guaranteed by the state. So there is the option then for savings accounts. But as I said, the best rates available from the banks in Ireland are currently around 2%. That's with the likes of AIB, EBS, Bank of Ireland. Um, there are other options then as well. The state provides a state saving scheme. It's a 10-year bond that accumulates 16% interest over the fixed term. That works out at about 1.5% annually. But again, it's subject to deposit interest retention tax, or DIRT as it's, as it's known, um, which is at 33%. The state also offers prize bonds as a form of savings, but interest rates are very low there. Now, most life insurance providers, the likes of Irish Life, Zurich, Aviva, they offered what is known as, as managed funds where they pool your money with a lot of other investors and invest in a range of different assets, classes, be it property, bonds, stocks and shares. Um, but the, the risk is there that you know these can go down as well as up. Um, all these products, they must have an ESMA rating. That grades how volatile the investment is. And then again, you are taxed on your return there. And also there's a matter of you may not have access to your money whenever you need it. Um, and then there is the option of, of putting your money into a pension fund. Yeah. Now, a lot of options to go through there, but um, you mentioned some of the government-backed schemes and prize bonds is one of them, I suppose, that we've all known historically. Um, the post office, another option, but they come with kind of quite hefty charges when you think you have to pay that dirt retention tax on it as well. So is that something that people are moving towards, do you think? Or do you think, is it, you know, what would, what would how would that figure in, in people's... Um, options. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure yet where people are going. I think people are kind of just waiting for the banks to put up the interest rates, especially when, you know, you do have comments from Minister for Finance, Michal McGrath, saying that, you know, he's confident this mismatch between the deposit interest rates being paid by the ECB to Irish banks versus what the lenders are passing on to consumers will be addressed. So I guess, you know, there is a part that people are hoping that soon they might see their interest rates increasing on their savings accounts and not just their mortgages. Yeah, and you mentioned also the potential of property investment. Uh, Of course, property is extremely hard to get at the moment but very lucrative in terms mm-hmm. of uh, it's it's constantly on the up now. Um, if you were investing in property and potentially have enough money to say put a deposit down on a, on a house that brings with it I suppose a, another set of concerns you've got to then manage that property you potentially have to rent it out so maybe you just take us through the plus and the minuses of actually taking your money out of a lump sum and investing it long term in property Absolutely well one I mean you know we've seen the price of property can go down as, as well as up and you just don't know at the moment where that's going to go And then if you are buying a property to rent it out, you know, you may want to employ a letting agency to rent out that property. So while rents are very, very high and people are aware of how high the rents are, again, you're paying tax on those rents and you might be paying for a letting agency then to look after the property, look after the tenants, you know, fix any issues that are arising. So there's no cheap options, I don't think, at the moment. 
Mm. Um, one of the other things we spoke about recently um, on the show here was people actually uh, investing in gold and uh, buying gold bars. And we had a very interesting person on telling us the legacy of that and how people sometimes just want something tangible to hold on to when they can't get a return from the bank. So maybe another area to explore would be art. Do you see that that, that is a part of the viable way that some people are kind of moving towards investing in art in a way now that they mightn't have in the past? Yeah, absolutely. It is an option for people. And again, it's something that you can have on the wall. You can have, you know, when people come over, visit your house or apartment, whatever it is. And then it is something that, you know, it's there. It's very, very visible. And you can kind of, you can see every day, you know, the return from the hard work that you've, you know, put into earning that money and and spending it. And then, you know, even better if you're supporting Irish artists then as well. There's, There's plenty of good ones out there. So certainly it is an option for people. And it is, as I said, it's something that is visible to you every day and, and, that you can show to your friends and family as well. Okay. You mentioned also pensions. This is a big one, I suppose, for people. Um, Can you talk us through what's available there in terms of tax, maybe, um, reductions that you can avail of by investing more in your pensions? Yeah, so saving into a pension offers tax relief on the contributions. The relief is set depending on which rate of workers' income is taxed is set at for this year if you earn more than 40,000 a year you'll get relief at 40% on the money you put into the pension so that is one way then that people can put more money into their pensions and get that tax benefit. I suppose a big thing when it comes to looking at banking and we can be very negative about what they're not doing but the big thing really when it comes to our savings is about risk and safety because lots of people were badly burned in 2008-2009 at the banking crash and um, all of these deposits are guaranteed which is I suppose the biggest plus of having your money mm-hmm. in in an Irish bank so can you just um, tell us how we might compare in a European sense when it comes to passing on these these uh, windfall gains that banks are making how are we how are we ranking yeah there certainly seems to be some evidence that some other European banks are um, the Irish banks maybe they, they themselves feel quite cautious still after they themselves are burned and you still have state interest in two of the three pillar banks that are left so maybe there is that kind of caution then that they want to you know keep those um, those profits in place for now given that they have been burned in the past themselves through mistakes that were made. Absolutely. If you're just tuning in you're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk and I'm speaking to Ellie Donnelly of the Business Post. Ellie just that issue of uh, political pressure to come back to that one for a moment I mean there has mm-hmm. been quite a significant uh, amount of attention paid to this issue of passing on the largesse and the profits um, in political circles and certainly in the newspapers over the summer Michael McGrath as we mentioned earlier trying to push the banks towards the redress do you think that there's something coming down the line now do you think that there's enough pressure here to edge the banks towards doing something in the short term I think we'll get a really clear indication of this when the doll resumes and, you know, the banks will be in, in front of the Oireachtas. And I think that'll give us a clear indication of, of what might happen in that sense. And we'll get a real sense of the political appetite then once the doll has resumed in that case. OK. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask was all of the issues and, and, and options we've gone through, property, pensions, art, um People have varying amounts in various different accounts. Does the amount of money you have determined where you should actually keep it? 
Um, well, I think one thing that determines it more than anything is, you know, if something happens or something goes wrong, one thing that you want to keep in mind more than anything probably is how quickly you might need to access that money. Mm. Because with certain savings accounts, there are penalties if you withdraw that money early. So I suppose with anything that you're doing, you know, the thing to bear in mind really is if I need to access my funds quickly, is that possible with this option that I'm looking at? And that's probably the thing that consumers most need to bear in mind is just, you know, if they need to dip into these funds, you know, for to cover something that comes up unexpectedly, how quickly they would be able to get that cash back. I think that's a very important factor that consumers would have to bear in mind when they're making any decision on their funds. Yeah, I think that actually comes back to the risk and the safety issue. It's there, but you can still access it. It's it's sort of a hangover, I still think, from the banking crisis. Just one of the other um, places, I suppose, financial institutions in Ireland where there's lots of deposits just sitting there are the credit unions. Are there any better... Um, rates on offer for them or are they roughly the same as the banks? Um, lots of people use the credit unions and I guess then it would depend. Some credit unions might have limits on the amount that you can save. So it would depend on the credit unions. But certainly they are, lots of credit unions are offering a good alternative to the banks now. And I know it's a market that they certainly, you know, credit unions very much see an opportunity in Ireland to, you know, kind of now that there's only three pillar banks left, they definitely see an opportunity for themselves to kind of gain more market share. Well, certainly lots of options there for someone who is actually thinking of moving their money out of the banks. So I just want to thank Ellie Donnelly from The Business Post for taking us through those options. Ellie, thanks for very much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk. Coming up, the turbulent life and times of Rudy Giuliani. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Do I what? Do you regret attaching your name to the former president? <laughs> I am very, very honored uh, to be involved in this case because this case is a fight for our way of life. This, this, in, this indictment is a travesty. It's an attack on not just me, not just President Trump, not just a people in this indictment, some of whom I don't even know. This is an attack on the American people. That was, of course, Rudy Giuliani speaking after he surrendered to Fulton County authorities on Wednesday afternoon before being released on $150,000 bond. Rudy Giuliani has become a figure of derision and ridicule in the States and indeed further afield. But there was a time when he was a very effective mayor of New York and also seen as a hero in the aftermath of 9-11. So what has happened to Rudy Giuliani? To look a little more closely at the rise and epic fall of this very complex figure, I'm delighted to be joined now by Lloyd Green, who is an attorney in New York. He's also served in the US Department of Justice and he frequently writes for The Guardian newspaper. Lloyd, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Hello and thank you. Lloyd, you've actually written about this um, on a number of occasions. One of them, you said he's gone from America's mayor to a human punchline. Can we just go back and start with his origins? Was he born into wealth and power? No, he wasn't. Um, He grew up in a working class household His father actually spent time in prison uh, in a jail in upstate New York. Um, He was muscle in enforcing debts. Mm. He was a collection man. His father was at a time. Um, On the other hand, his uh, family ended up getting him into uh, 
Catholic private schools in New York. And it definitely gave him a sense of direction. It gave him a sense of arc. Mm. Um, he then makes it to New York University Law School. He excels there, and he becomes a uh, clerk to a federal judge. And he starts moving along a pretty set, pretty well-trod, but very prestigious and very powerful path um, from that point onward. So coming from what is, effect, you know, very humble background, he did extraordinarily well for himself. He's obviously a very bright and talented man. Um, I suppose he, he, he grew through the legal system, but he, 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 made, he retained some kind of global prominence, I suppose, first as mayor of New York with his Broken Windows Zero Tolerance campaign. What made him so successful at that job as mayor? Okay, I think to get a sense of what what helped him with his success, there are several pieces. One is he was a known factor. He was a federal prosecutor. He went after the mob. He went after Wall Street. He went after the rich and powerful. That bought him serious credibility. Mm. To be able to do the mob and Wall Street basically said, this is a guy who is not afraid of most anything. Second... He runs for mayor in 1989. He loses by a small margin. City, from that point onward, sees a rise in crime. Safety is an issue. Crime is an issue. And Rudy then rides it. Mm. Um, given the demographics of the city, Rudy is able to establish very serious reports with the police, with swing voting blocks, with the city's middle class. And essentially, that makes the difference as he runs for election in 1993. Um, you had some seriously well-reported crimes, and that was enough to really boost Rudy's chances. Mm. Um, and then once in office, he was serious as a heart attack about tackling crime. Mm. He personalized it. He made it his top priority, and that won him a lot of goodwill from the city. Um yeah, and, and maybe, or did he there, learn the benefits of conflict, let's say, in the political realm? Because it's almost, seems to me, uh, at least, that he kind of thrives on conflict. Um, and also, his use of the courtroom and the legal system is more like um, a stage to him. It's a kind of springboard to elevate him and get the attention that he needs for that. So... How then did he take his experience as, as mayor um, and use that to kind of propel himself forward? Or did he use it successfully to propel himself forward? It, the short answer is it depends what you mean by propelling yourself forward. Rudy Giuliani was a big opera fan. I mean, and it, you see it in his personality. It, it is operatic. It is not buttoned down. It is not close to the vest. He mm. just goes all out there. Running into the, on the eve of 9-11, Rudy Giuliani's popularity was already dropping. He was a two-term mayor, and he was term limited out, practically speaking. Mm. He wins in 93. He wins re-election in 97. Come 2001, he'll be, he would be stepping aside. Because of 9-11, however, he ends up getting he which he handled magnificently he was able to make people feel safe wanted 
um, and a sense that there was a tomorrow after this. Mm. He goes ahead, he does all that. He then turns his eye to running for president of the United States in 2008. And that does not go well for him. Mm. And and do you think that at that point in 2008, where he saw himself as a potential candidate in the US presidential election, um, had 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 he reached, you know, this the kind of delusional state where he believed it, or were there other people who thought he might be able to do something? He was a, for a time he was a Republican front runner. Mm. He, the wheels come off once he gets scrutinized. Um, his personal life starts getting just a bit too exciting. He divorces his second wife in public. She did not even know. This goes back to about 2000. So you already have that strike. And that's where you start saying, Rudy can become a bit too much. Mm. Um, 9-11 ended up meaning forgiveness and appreciation. But that chord was already out there. And you already had previously, um, Rudy could get over his skis uh, with public anger. Um, There was a police rally where he just, lost it, Um, going back into, I think it was the early 1990s, but that was Rudy. Mm. And suddenly he starts running for for the Republican nominee for president. He doesn't handle himself as well as he might have handled himself with regard to his personal life. Uh, Tim Russert, the late Tim Russert, the host of Meet the Press, begins to ask him about it. I think this was about 2007, and that was really signaling the fact that the press smelled vulnerability Mm. with him. And he did not adjust. The other problem he had was the Republican Party is a pro-life party. Mm. And even Donald Trump has had to come to grips and adapt to that reality. But in 2007, 2008, Rudy was not, which did wonders for his fundraising capacity Mm. from high-end Republicans on Wall Street, but it did not endear him as a a potential presidential candidate to the Republican base. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, look, uh, you mentioned a lot of things in there which we could uh, delve into, you know, this this idea and that he's an opera fan and he's he's high drama and people have just come to accept uh, that that's who he is. I mean, almost in nine eleven, sometimes you need those type of bigger, larger than life characters who step out and say, "Look, everything's going to be okay." And that's certainly what he did in nine eleven. He had sort of redeemed his reputation. There was a lot of respect for how he carried himself in that. And um, so, you think then where it came unstuck was two thousand seven, two thousand and eight for him, really. But the the next phase of of his life, I suppose, where he has had significant prominence is his relationship with Donald Trump. It goes back quite a way, though, doesn't it? It definitely does. It goes back to uh, Rudy's time at City Hall. Mm. Um, You ended up having Rudy gets dressed up in drag, of all things, um, at one of these uh, dinners involving the press. He and Trump go out there um, and they do their thing. So there's a longstanding rapport. Mm. And as um, 
he started having personal difficulty. His um, then third wife accompanied him down to Florida and would talk about how Trump was actually a good friend to him at that time. It gave Rudy time out of the spotlight and a time to just reflect and gather his wits together. Mm. Uh, and that's, I mean, so that rapport goes back. In addition, Andrew Giuliani, Rudy's son, um, ended up working at the Trump White House. This time there was fractious. I don't think he got along all that well with John Kelly, one of the Trump chiefs of staff. Uh, but the tie was more than just, um, I'm hanging with the mayor, I'm hanging with the real estate developer. Mm. It was personal. Mm. And I think Trump not picking up Rudy's legal tab ended up painting Giuliani, on the other hand, where it is now that Trump is throwing a $100,000 ahead fundraiser to help Giuliani with his legal bills. Mm. The dynamic in the relationship has for sure shifted, I'm sure, over time where, you know, Trump would have been looking to Giuliani at times for assistance and help as kind of high financer in, in New York. But then it came to a point where I suppose Giuliani was um, on the other side of it looking for a role in Donald Trump's court, if you like, and he was to become a chief advocate at some very difficult times, particularly in the campaign in 2016 for Trump, wasn't he? Well, he goes into high gear mm. um, in the fall campaign. You're absolutely right. Giuliani becomes a, a serious Trump surrogate in 2016 in the fall. Heading into the convention, Giuliani, I think, was more on the sidelines. He was initially, I think, was for John Kasich. He then shifts over, who is the former governor of Ohio. He then shifts to Trump. But he kicks into high gear in the fall. And then it becomes, what do you want? What position? And Giuliani was the guy that Trump's people saw as a prospective attorney general. That's not how Giuliani saw himself. Giuliani saw himself as a secretary of state. And then the story started coming out about Trump's people having reservations about Giuliani as secretary of state, given his persona, given his habits, given his demeanor. Mm. And that became complicating. Giuliani did not get, the, get tasked. They didn't give him the ball to, to run with as Secretary of State, but Giuliani made it his business to always keep proximity. The fact that his son Andrew was around the White House did not hurt. Um, but during the Hunter Biden first Ukraine, first impeachment saga, Giuliani emerges as a uh, player. Mm. And he never, from that point onward, he never then leaves the stage. And you get to election night 2020, you get, in a sense, the stories get reported that Giuliani is not willing to let go. Mm. Um, he has words with Sidney Powell in the aftermath as to which one is less tethered to reality. But he becomes, at that point, a permanent fixture. Mm. Yeah, and of course, that 2020 election 
possibly his darkest time and now we're dealing with all the consequences of that in court as well as everywhere else which will be well versed and, and discussed on other programmes. Um, we're running out of time so I wanted to ask you uh, a final question on this if I can Lloyd and it's about his style of politics that bombast that you know eating up all the oxygen taking up all the space in the media where you thrive on dysfunction is that style of politics could he have actually been a sort of precursor to Trump himself to pay the way for that style? The short answer is yes. I mean, at the end of the day, these are both Trump and Rudy are outer borough New York tough guys. Um, And they were comfortable with it. Uh, Rudy, and in a sense, both of them use that style against a sense of dysfunctional backgrounds politically. New York City had crime coming out of into 2016 election. There was a serious sense of things are not feeling all that great, aren't feeling that all right. And Trump used it. Now, Rudy ended up winning elections. Trump never won the popular vote, but he won enough in the Electoral mm. College to win. And, it, and he did gain the Republican nomination in 2016, and this time the nomination in 2024 is essentially going to be a coronation, barring some unforeseen circumstance. Yeah, well, I'd love to talk to you a lot more about that. I will reference something that you said about that clash in Milwaukee uh, with the other Republican candidates this week. You said the debate was more than simply was more than simply an audition to be the former guy's running mate, which I think is a great way to sum it up. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. Can I say thank you to Lloyd Green, who is an attorney in New York and served in the US Department of Justice from 1990 to 92. Lloyd, thank you very much for being with us today. You're very welcome. Up next, veteran broadcaster Dermot Murnahan joins us to talk about his life and times and the growth of celebrity culture politics. Stay tuned. That's after this break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, the award-winning journalist Dermot Murnahan has spent 40 years in broadcast news in the UK. He's presented on all of the major networks there, including Channel 4, ITV, BBC and Sky News, where he finished up earlier this year. He's reported from around the world and anchored elections in the UK since 1992 and in the US since 1998. He's interviewed a whopping 10 British prime ministers and delivered some of the most important news events of our time to the world, including he was the first to broadcast and announce the very sad death of Queen Elizabeth II from outside Buckingham Palace last year. He's an Arsenal fan. We can't hold that against him, but he's no stranger to these shores. He has a home here in Dingle in County Kerry and his father hails from Northern Ireland. Dermot, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for having me, Mandy. What, what a kind introduction. Well, that's over now. We're into the real stuff. Uh, (laughs) No, no, we're delighted to talk to you. And I know that you're going to, uh, as I said, you're no stranger to the shores here in Ireland, but you're going to head to Wexford next week. Tell us about what you're going to be doing down there. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, It's a part of Ireland that I don't really know very well, but I'm going down for the Kennedy Summer School, uh, which I know has been uh, a fixture on the kind of uh, political and cultural circuit for for many, many years now. Um, I'm, I'm excited, you know, from that point of view as well, in terms of what we're going to discuss and what I'm going to hear, but uh, also because um, 
my wife's side of the family hail from Wexford and have been raving about it for years. And as I say, I've never made it down there. Um, she's um, my, my wife is um, part Wexfordian, part uh, Doyle. A shout out to the Doyles of New Ross. So I'm very, very, as I say, very much looking forward to it on uh, so many levels. Well, I'm sure uh, an amazing welcome awaits you from the Doyles. But the the summer school itself has a a great um, uh, lineup this year. Indeed, every year it's really good, but very interesting topics. I, I had the pleasure of attending last year myself. You will not be disappointed and you're really going to enjoy it. So I wish you well in that. But we want to go back to your career now and talk a little bit more about you and um, what you've done over the course of that career. Maybe some advice for those who are looking into journalism as a career themselves. But as I said in the intro, you're one of the most prolific broadcasters of our time, every significant UK organisation. Such a great career that you've had. Um, I wanted to ask you about your, you've recently stepped away from Sky News. Um, um, was that difficult for you? Have you been able to actually switch off from the news? I, I worked in politics for a long time and I remember when I left, it took me a long, long time not to switch on to the news on the hour, every hour and sometimes all day. So have you been able to step back from it? That's a spot on question. Yeah, I've just um, just come back from a few weeks in in Kerry and uh, yeah, I couldn't get away from it. I it's it's in the DNA. You keep yes, switching on the radio, watching the TV. I mean, there's still so much going on. And, and, and I put it, I, you know, I, I go way back to, you know, why I wanted to, to become a journalist was, you know, when I was at school, I used to write essays on current affairs. I remember I, I badgered my parents to let me watch the first ever news at 10, which was back in the 60s, which shows how old I am. But I was only nine years old then. So, yeah, I, I don't think I'm ever going to switch off. I think it's it's part of my makeup. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's what rocks my boat, I suppose, is the, is, is, is the phrase. So you never switch off. And I think, you know, if that's what you're interested in, it doesn't – it doesn't have to be part of the the job for you to keep on doing it. Mm. You mentioned that you've oh, that's it, it's something that you always wanted to do. I mentioned in the introduction that your father was from Northern Ireland. Um, Northern Ireland seemed to play a significant part of your career, why you chose this, why you did it. I do think that people who are from Northern Ireland, even living in the UK, as, as happened to my family, they take a particular interest in Northern Ireland um, and it, it, it kind of grounds you in news a little bit because I suppose it was ever present in the 60s and 70s over there. But did Northern Ireland itself play a significant part of, of your career? It absolutely did because, um, you know, as people can tell from my accent, um, I was born in England. Uh, my mother's English. Um, and I was schooled here till I was, um, five, six years old, living in Yorkshire. And then we moved back to Northern Ireland with uh, great timing by my parents to Armagh in 1965. And yeah, and then it all kicked off in uh, about 68, 69. And uh, so I was at school in, in, in Northern Ireland during the, the, the development, the genesis of the Troubles, and then, of course, the really, really dark days of the 70s. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you grow up. And uh, if you're not interested in, you know, what's going on around you, you're going to get in some trouble. I was, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is where we get into the kind of, you know, the, the sectarian nature of things. I was, so I was a guy who had an English accent going to a Catholic school um, in a divided city in Armagh, 
and originally, you know, kind of getting a bit of, I remember getting a bit of, you know, chip from um, my schoolmates. I mean, you know, after a few months, it was all great, but, you know, it was like, oh, you know, you're a Brit and all that. And then, and then mm-hmm. going to a Catholic primary school on the way home, getting rocks thrown at me from, um, from the local Protestant estate. I mean, I didn't have a clue. I, I really genuinely didn't have a clue. My mother, you know, again, if we're getting deep into the weeds of, um, of the sectarian nature and the, 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 the way it was and still partially is in Northern Ireland, you know, my mother uh, was an English Protestant. My dad had, you know, had a mixed marriage, a, a, an Irish Catholic, a Northern Irish Catholic. So, yeah, you know, you really do, you really do see it from all sides. You know, I became a massive, massive liberal with a small L. Um, You've got to be able mm. to see both sides. I've straddled both horses, so to speak, and um, wow, yeah, <laughs> you really put you really put your finger yeah. on it there, Mandy. I think that's where that's where the genesis of the interest lay, and also, you know, as I've observed around the world, uh, divisions for no good reason. I, you know, I think the biggest and most seemingly intractable one is, of course, far from our shores in the Middle East. But you know, I live in London now. I've lived here for. 40, 45 years. Um, and you quite easily see people from that part of the world, from, from all faiths and backgrounds getting on. But of course, when they're, mm. um, when they're cheek by jail there, they can't, you know, I'm not trying to be Henry Kissinger here and solve, solve the global issues, but, um, I, I, I really saw that in Northern Ireland. I really absorbed it and experienced it ever so slightly myself that, uh, you know, it's something I'm really passionate about, as you can tell is you know, just, for goodness sake, you know, there is, there is, there has to be a middle ground, a common ground, and we can ultimately, I hope, all get on. Mm. You know, that's very interesting. I think the other thing it has maybe done for you is made you incredibly resilient as well, because, yeah, as you say, you may have been as a child blissfully unaware, but that sense of not fitting in in either space um, does kind of give you uh, a bit of resilience. I think that when you go into journalism and stuff, kind of, put you a bit ahead of the pack because you you, sh- you need to be resilient for sure. Um, I want to just talk to you a little bit about um, the the summer school and, and the topic around what's happening at the summer school. You're going to be exploring the complexities um, and the pitfalls of uh, celebrity involvement in politics. And I wanted to ask you, do you feel like that we're at a stage now where celebrity politicians like Boris Johnson, like Donald Trump, have completely overtaken and eclipsed politicians of substance and policy when it comes to actually gaining media attention and gaining voter attraction? They do seem to be blocking out the sun. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You know, the, the current situation in the United States, and even that obliterates what's gone on in the UK with with Boris Johnson. And I'm sure you know there will be another coming of Boris Johnson. But Donald Trump just defies all definition. I've been listening to some of the courage coverage over the recent days, and people are still treating him as a joke. You know, there are people, there's still commentators mm. with a little chuckle in their voice uh, about, oh, Donald mm. Trump did this. You know, get real guys. This is something entirely, entirely different in the most powerful militarily, politically and economically country in the world ever. This really genuinely matters. Mm. Now, where it goes, I don't know. But the next election, that, that, that election, 
is absolutely critical to the entire world, obviously to the United States, but to the entire world, to democracy, to economies, um, you know, for global peace. There's, I mean, we are talking big potatoes here. So, yeah, I'm, you know, uh, I think Donald Trump will probably obliterate the conversation or certainly dominate that converse, conversation at the Kennedy Summer School. You know, just you mentioned Boris Johnson, as I say, I'm sure we haven't heard the last of him, but... Um, he has something a little bit different, I think, to, to Donald Trump. He kind of always wanted to be a politician, was always kind of a politician in spite of the fact that he was a journalist mm. who then became, who then became a celebrity. Donald Trump is the purest definition of celebrity politics. Um, and w whether what he's doing is politics or not, I'm not entirely sure because, you know, if you studied him mm. up close and personal and I was there in 2015, 2016, when, you know, the Republicans weren't taking him seriously early on, and then he just bulldozed the whole field. And that um, that final uh, Republican uh, convention, I think it was in Cleveland, Ohio, I listened open-mouthed to his acceptance speech, went down on the delegates' floor and talked to some of the, some of those Trumpites who were carrying guns. They were allowed, um, you know, which is very, very, very strange when they're quite angry as well. Um, and just listened to them mm. and, th and thought, my goodness me, is this really happening? It has, and it looks like we're having a, a second coming. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think the the media chuckle, as you called it, or the little laugh or the nod to camera is almost a rerun of 2016, where there's a sort of willful blindness that, oh, God, this is never going to happen. Chris Christie in the debate this week, um, you know, he got a lot of criticism, obviously, but said, look, we've normalized this. This is normal now. Um, so, look, I, I want to raise a question about this Um when you were leaving Sky News, you did say that was the best news organization in the UK. And look, we can't have a discussion about, I, I think, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson without looking at the Murdoch empire. It's been accused many, many times, not just facilitating this type of politician, but actually fostering it. Now, you worked there for 15 years. Um, you obviously, you know, have a lot of friends there. But what do you say to that charge as somebody who has worked at a very high level in a news organization like that? Um, well, you know, I, I, I would speak simply as an observer. I mean, my experience and, and the ownership changed at, uh, at Sky News while I was there. It's uh, now owned by uh, Comcast Universal. Um, and having worked, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, having worked at all the major news organisations in the United Kingdom, I found all of them, you know, in, in, in a way have, have big overlords, um, you know, when it comes to ITV or, or even the BBC, uh, you know, a boss class there, not um, not uh, commercial. Uh, Murdoch's the same. Um, they leave you alone. I, I never, I'm, while he owned Sky News, I never met him once. I saw him at a distance um, somewhere on the on, on the media campus. Um, but, but they do. I mean, you know, the genuinely is hands off. Now, yeah, it's it's very different in the United States because the media. The media regulation, the media system there is very different, and uh, Fox News is a vast cash cow um, for the uh, for the Murdoch operation. But but you know I I know very little of it. Uh, certainly Sky News wasn't like that, and, and and isn't like that, and can't be like that, and and doesn't want to be like that. Mm. 
Yeah, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the state of journalism itself before before we go. But I wanted to ask you, um, is there a story in your career that stood out for you? Something that affected you in a personal way? I know this is a big ask because you've covered a lot, but I, I just want to get a sense if there was something affected you personally. Yeah, people, you know, people have asked me, you know, how much does, particularly the tragic side of things, how much does that affect you? You know, a lot, obviously, I'm a human being, but then you're doing a job. And so, you know, when you've announced death, disaster and, and war, you're aware of a, a responsibility. You know, I'm not one of those journalists who think I've got a, you know, I, 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 I've got a holy mission to, 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 speak truth unto power i mean i do do believe that i'm leaving out the holy mission bit but um you know i don't want to smoke <laughs> up my proverbial but um yeah i mean i think the biggest one that really did get to me where i was pretty gobsmacked well you know almost unable to broadcast from it but um but needed needed to get through it because it was a story that needed to be told was um dunblane 1996 mm. um uh, a, a man whose name i'm I, i'm not even going to i'm not not even going to mention his name mm. you know um, shot himself obviously but you know we all know the story went into a primary school and shot a lot of five-year-old children some teachers and then turned the gun on himself that happened i'll tell you what happened i was I had a day off that day. It was March 13th, 1996. I remember it so very, very well because it's my daughter's birthday. She was four years old that day. And I was traveling back to, from work to, um, go to her, her birthday party, got the call. And, you know, this is why it sticks in my mind that a bunch of five year olds, they were a year older than my daughter Kitty, um, had been massacred by this guy. Um, and went up to Dunblane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the hairs are rising yeah. on the back of my neck right now. Now, you know, one thing I should say, if we're going to touch on on journalism as a profession, is is that there, it became very clear there to me that there is a dichotomy. Uh, we went up there as broadcasters and, you know, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have allowed it any other way. We were absolutely as sensitive, as aware as we could possibly be, but it's a story that has to be told. But our cameras were a respectful distance. We went where... You know that where, where, where people said we could go and didn't go where people said we we couldn't go. And then after about I think two or three days of coverage from there, some people came along to us. Uh, I was working at ITN at the time and just said, "Look, you know, we, we've got to try to heal. We're never going to heal, but we've got you know we've mm. got the glare gone." So we left. They asked us to leave. We left. Now some of my so-called colleagues in journalism, um, you know, didn't they were. You know, another branch of journalism were posting letters yeah. through letterboxes, asking for photographs and interviews. And yeah, it's not nice to see that. It really isn't. But you know, on the on on the core story itself, I went back a year later at the request of some of the families, just to remember their children. You know, and being taken, you know, around their graves with the families, you just go, whoa. Yeah. yeah, you know, this yeah. is a form of suffering that hopefully the vast number of us will never, ever, ever face. But you know, let's let's be aware. And you know, something something good did come of it. I, I joined their campaign, which banned handguns more or less in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, we are a much safer society in the United Kingdom, and indeed Ireland's Ireland's pretty much similar. Of course, we have gun crime, but you know, having reported in the United States, I mean, we're not even 
you know, not even close to that. But you know, that was that was a tiny, tiny glimmer of something positive coming out of that most dreadful tragedy. Well, Dermot, thank you for for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, it must have been uh, an awful thing to cover, and as you say, very personal um, for you. Look, I, I'm going to finish up now. I could probably talk to you for an hour, but I'm going to finish up by asking you um, what next, I guess. I know elections uh, are a huge adrenaline rush for people who are behind the scenes in politics. I guess it's the same for people who have worked all their lives in the media. Um, you know, you're going to be sitting there watching the US presidential race. Will you get involved in some way as a commentator? Do you plan to do other things? I, I, I know you love journalism. I can't see you leaving it entirely behind. So what's your plan? No, yeah, you're absolutely right. No, next year, wow, yeah, it's on the radar. Well, it's 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 double whammy. Uh, you know, there has to be a UK election, uh, and of course, um, you know, whatever transpires in the United States, I mean, it is looking like Trump Biden. So, in terms of my involvement, well, yeah, I will be involved. Um, discussions are taking place, Mandy. I've, you know, simply I've recalibrated uh, as I got to the age I am. I thought I've. I've I, I've got to get off the hamster wheel. You know, I was selling, I put it, I'm selling, you know, healthy time, however much healthy time I've got left for money. Um, you know, you're turning up five days a week and more, working all hours, God sends, and yeah. And I thought, well, you know, if, if, if there's a time to get off it, the, the time is now, as you mentioned, you know, I kind of covered so many big stories in the last few years, particularly you know, the election in the UK of 2019, then the 2020 um, in the United States. And then, of course, Her Majesty the Queen passed away uh, on my watch just a year ago. And uh, it was a moment of, I suppose, um, reassessment for me as well. I thought, right, what else do I want to do? You're right. 2024 is on the radar, but there was 2023 in between. And I thought, yeah, I want to go to Kerry for a month. So that's what I did. Well, listen, Dermot, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, I wish you well in your future endeavours, whatever they might be. I hope you come back and talk to us again. Uh, but for now, uh, all I will say to you is enjoy Wexford. And, and to use your own words when you're signing off from, from Sky News, stay classy in Wexford. That was Dermot Murnahan, a broadcaster and journalist, wishing you well. Thanks very much, Dermot. They're always classy in Wexford, I'm sure. Mandy, thank you very much. Next week, Dermot Murnahan is appearing at the JF Summer School. And just to mention, the hard shoulder are also coming from the JFK Summer School next Thursday. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcast from. My thanks, as always, to today's guest. And I want to thank the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, and also Stephen Daunt and Laura Hannan on research with Hugo da Silva on sound. And if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.